We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. You don't want it. You don't need it. But you're going to get it anyway. The Kevin Sheehan Show. Here's Kevin. Two guests on the show today, senior data analyst from Pro Football Focus, Nick Ackridge, who we've had on before, will jump on with me in the next segment. We'll recap the uh, Washington 2022 season, find out who the highest graded players on offense and defense were. We'll look to, uh, look towards the draft, the offseason, the plan at quarterback. Um, Nick is fully invested in the team locally and also works for PFF. So Nick will be on with us in the next segment. And then Andy Poland will jump on with me for the final segment. We'll talk about Bobby Beathard and other things uh, with Andy as well. I want to start the show with an email that I just read. And so um, I'm a little bit fired up over this email. Um, so I'm going to read it to you, and then I'm going to uh, respond to it here at the beginning of the show. And then I'll get to something else um, of interest to me, because we've talked about it before, but Barry's Verluga wrote about Brian Mitchell and his Hall of Fame um, case. Uh, Brian's not in the Hall of Fame. He won't be in the Hall of Fame in 2023. Um, the finalist list down to 15 will get will get selected this Saturday uh, before the Super Bowl, so a week from tomorrow. But anyway, um, I'll get to that in a moment. This email from Devin. Devin writes, Kevin, been listening to you for years. I've always appreciated your straightforwardness and your ability to take on the team for its misdeeds in a way that's thoughtful and reasoned without the typical radio screaming and bullying. Um, Sounds good so far. Uh, But I find myself on the complete other side of you on the rebrand discussion, and I think you're taking them off the hook, and I'm suspicious as to the reasons why. Uh, The rebrand, I'll come back to that in a moment. The rebrand was terrible, and yes, they could have done much better. Uh, It wasn't as insurmountable a challenge as you described. For starters, how about just listening to the fans? Red Wolves, Red Hogs, either would have been okay, and both of them would have been a thousand times better than what they came up with. Instead, whatever they used research-wise, they went with boring, completely safe from any kind of controversy, and a multi-syllable name that leaves no chance for even a nickname. They blew it. How do you not understand the importance of a full name and nickname 
for a sports franchise. Caps, Nats, Wiz. They're only one of three teams in the NFL with more than two syllables in their name. The other two have easy nicknames, the Pats and the Bucks. Um, so the other two NFL teams I'm adding right now are the Patriots and Buccaneers with more than two syllables in their team name. And you've got the Commanders um, as well. And there, he's right. There is no easy nickname. Nobody's come up with a nickname at this point. Um, he continues, Devin does. You are right when you take them to task for not knowing anything about the city, the fan base, the history of the team. And you called, you called them out for that stupid crest and they changed it. But the challenge wasn't what you made it out to be. And like with everything else, they made it harder on themselves than they needed to. And you took them off the hook. Yes, you've been highly critical of many things that they've done, but I am suspicious about why you're giving them so much leeway on this. Uh, First of all, thank you, Devin, for the email. Um, And I do read uh, a lot of the emails that you send through the website at thekevinsheehanshow.com. Um, and you can also tweet me at Kevin Sheehan DC. Uh, so first of all, you're a hundred percent right about the nickname. And I didn't mention that. And that is an important thing. I agree with you on that. You know, it would have been much easier. And I, I'm, I'm surprised that there wasn't an emphasis on a team name that would have lent itself to an easy, obvious nickname. And th- that happens more often with two syllable names or but in the case of the other two NFL teams with three syllables it's easy with pats and bucks and there's nothing easy on commanders you're right and I have not mentioned that in the past maybe I have but not emphasized it enough and that that was a big whiff 100% right um that is something that they could have easily controlled and and wasn't you know a massive challenge to say right from the jump hey Whatever we come up with has to have an easy, obvious nickname off of it. I do think that's important. I do. And not every NFL team has, you know, and obviously the one-syllable teams, the Bears, the Lions, um, they don't have nicknames necessarily. But the two-syllable teams all do. You know, the Cards, the Hawks, the Niners, um, actually, 49ers is 49ers is four syllables. 40, 49ers is four syllables. But again, easy nickname off of it, um, the Niners, um, et cetera. So um, I do agree with you on that. I'm, I, I, I'm, I still I disagree with you that this wasn't um, easy, but you didn't necessarily say that. So I don't want uh, I don't want to put words into your mouth. Um, but I guess in in terms of the challenge, there were aspects of this challenge that they made more difficult on themselves. Agreed. I agree with you. Um, and I also agree with you that it's very clear that they didn't really listen to the fan base like they said they would. Although I think Red Wolves and Red Hogs and some of those names, remember, just because that's a trend on Twitter or some fan site puts out, you know, a poll and gets, you know, 150 votes on it and it's overwhelmingly Red Wolves, you know, Twitter isn't real life necessarily. But I agree with you that Red Wolves and or Red uh, or Red Hogs would have gone over 
better. I agree with that. I think Red Hogs in particular, for, from my standpoint. Red Wolves, as I said from the very beginning, felt to me very much like, you know, like a CYO sixth grade basketball team nickname. And they had trademark issues with that anyway. Um, with Was it Central Arkansas University? I think it's Central Arkansas University. Um, but I think a lot of what you said, I, I agree with you. I, I do, I'm not taking them off the hook um, it, from this standpoint. I still think it was a, a process that was going to lead to m- the majority and the significant majority being disappointed and being angered um, about whatever they came up with. But, you know, I think we hammered them appropriately so on the execution. And I think we've done that all along. Um, but yeah, the the name and the syllable thing and, and the no easy nickname. I mean, they're the only team in the league that is more than one syllable that doesn't really have a nickname. Now, as far as your comments about suspicious, you know, when you write, I think you're taking them off the hook and I'm suspicious as to the reasons why um, and why you're giving them so much leeway. I don't really feel like I'm giving them that much leeway. I'm just acknowledging that I think even if someone like me or many of you with, you know, inherent knowledge of the team and understanding of the customer base, even if we had taken the project on, we wouldn't have pleased everybody. There's no way. I mean, the bottom line is once the old name was gone, um, there's just a significant percentage of people that you were never going to please with a new name, which is why I still believe the right way to go is focusing on Washington as the brand. And then we can come up with our own nicknames like soccer teams do. And I'm sure marketing and branding experts will say that kind of thing works, you know, in soccer in you know, overseas, but it won't work in the U S and they may have, you know, real reasons as to why. Um, but I don't know. To me, that would um, that would make it easier. You know, I would just call them Washington, which I do most of the time anyway. I would refer to them as the Skins, which I do sometimes anyway. Um, and we could move on. And I would just want the old uniforms back. But I have no problem with the helmet with the W. But as far as being suspicious, I don't know what you're talking about. If you're referring to that somehow. Um, I have a relationship with some of the new people that are out there. That's not really true. I know and I talk to some of the new people out there. Um, I do, but it does not stop me and it hasn't stopped me from being constructively critical when appropriate. And I've had conversations with some of those people at times when they haven't been very happy with what I've said. Um, but I have, you know, consistently given them the reasons why I felt that way. And more times than not, believe it or not, they backed up. And said, okay, see where you're coming from. And by the way, you know, maybe some of that makes sense. But anyway, thank you for that email. And yeah, I do understand where you're coming from, netting it out. They, there were some things that they could have gotten a lot easier and weren't as challenging. And clearly the execution and the rollout, they, you know, they butchered seven ways to Sunday. Um, before we bring Nick Ackridge on, I just wanted to touch on a story that Barry's Verluga wrote in the Washington Post today. Um, he makes the case for Brian Mitchell to be in the Hall of Fame. Um, the story's titled, Brian Mitchell isn't in the Hall of Fame. It's time to right that wrong. And, 
you know, we've talked a lot about, you know, the players that are in the Hall of Fame and the players who aren't in the Hall of Fame. I truly believe that nobody comes next other than Jake. Joe Jacoby is the major missing Hall of Fame franchise piece. Um, I think you can make cases for others, and I would say you can make a really good case for Gary Clark, actually. And I've mentioned that before. I mean, Gary Clark's numbers match up and exceed some other wide receivers who are in the Hall of Fame. But as it relates to B. Mitch, I loved some of the quotes that uh, Barry got for this story from the two coaches, the two main coaches that coached him, Washington's Joe Gibbs, where he was here for 10 years, and Andy Reid in Philadelphia, where he was here for three years. He played in New York for the Giants for one year, but the quotes were all from Andy Reid, who said, quote, if you're evaluating for great players that love the game and understand the game, he would have to be one of them. Um, Joe Gibbs had some really good quotes about B. Mitch. Quote, when I talk about our Super Bowl teams, I always say that we started with special teams. Our first meeting of each day was special teams. I always felt like special teams was the heart of your team because I think all the guys that played uh, just offense or just defense, they had such tremendous respect for the guys that played special teams. There's that appreciation to run down there on a, and field a punt when you got 11 guys coming down to try to k- kill you or to return a punt. And he said – About Brian, and this is something that I've heard so many times from so many people who played or coached around Brian Mitchell. Gibbs said, what you came to understand is that he's really bright and he's really football smart, which is really important. And then Gibbs talked about, you know, B. Mitch's physical toughness. And he was, you know, quite the competitor and quite the badass on the field. But I remember a story Norv Turner told about how he needed Brian Mitchell at times to help his young quarterbacks in the huddle call plays, specifically Heath Schuler. That Brian Mitchell knew the playbook like the back of his hand and, and knew everybody's responsibility on every play. And literally, and I remember asking Brian about this, he said, yeah, there were, Norv had me at times calling the plays for Heath Schuler in the huddle or helping Heath to call the plays in the huddle and some of our other young quarterbacks. Um, so on Brian Mitchell's case for the Hall of Fame, I think we all know, I think most of you know anyway, that Brian Mitchell still, to this day, is number two on the all-time, all-purpose yardage NFL career list behind Jerry Rice. Jerry Rice is at 23,546 yards. B. Mitch is at 23,330 yards. B. Mitch literally only needed 247 more yards of all-purpose yardage to be number one on that list ahead of Jerry Rice. And then Walter Payton is literally like nearly 2,000 yards behind him. Emmett Smith, the same. Um, the, of the four top all-purpose yardage guys, three are in the Hall of Fame, B. Mitch isn't, but Brian is the only special team teamer there. Then Frank Gore is five. He's headed to the Hall of Fame. Darren Sproles is six, isn't in the Hall of Fame. Tim Brown, seven. Marshall Falk, seven and eight. They're both in the Hall of Fame. Um, I think... For me, when I think about Brian Mitchell, who was, and I've told him this before, he was one of my favorite players. I thought he was a competitive badass. And I loved him as a returner, and I loved him offensively the way Gibbs would use him sometimes. 
And Brian always came up big in the team's biggest games. When you go, look, everybody was great on that 91 team, and they were never pressed. I mean, that season, by the way, the 91 season opened up basically with Brian Mitchell returning a punt for a touchdown, second year of his career, against Detroit on Sunday night football as part of a 45 to nothing absolute pounding of the Lions, which was, you know, a, a signal of what was to come in 91. And then in 92, as the defending champions, when they kind of, you know, got into the playoffs backdoor style, faced Minnesota in the wild card round, Brian had 16 carries for 109 yards and a touchdown, rushing 38 of those yards on a fake punt as the up guy in the in the punt formation. I mean, Gibbs, you know, always had tricks and trick plays in postseason games. And then a week later at Candlestick, Brian was a big part of the comeback. They were down 17-3. They had the ball down 17-13 going in for the go-ahead score. There's a hole that you could drive a truck through and rip and bobble the snap in the mud at Candlestick, and B. Mitch never got the ball. But if he did, Washington's probably going to the NFC Championship game. And then let's not forget in 2000, the Norv team that beat Detroit and then lost to Tampa, that's the last time they were anywhere near an NFC title game. Uh, the you know the '99 skins with Brad Johnson, and we ended up with the Turks, you know, on the snap and the hold, and no kick uh, down 14-13. But in that game, Brian gave them a 10-0 lead on a 100-yard kickoff return, and then he was in Philadelphia for three straight years of playoff games and had big games, including a 75-yard kickoff return in the in the the NFC Championship game on the opening kickoff uh, in 2002 against Tampa. They lost that game. He played in 16 playoff games. He played in a lot of playoff games. Um, does that yardage count as the all-purpose yardage? Because I'm looking at his all-time postseason yardage. He had 875 yards in kickoff returns in the postseason, and 339 yards in punt returns in the postseason. Crazy. And then had another 232 yards rushing in the postseason. Now, as far as Brian in the in the Hall of Fame, look, Devin Hester's on the finalist list. Brian's never even made it to the semifinalist list. And I don't have a problem with Brian not being in the Hall of Fame. I think he was a great player. Um, and I think that he's underrated um, as a player in looking back at the great, you know, special teamers and returners in history. By the way, don't forget Brian, you know, opened up the, two, uh, the, the 93 season with Richie Pettibone as the starting running back and went for over 100 yards uh, on Monday night football against the Cowboys, who were the defending champions coming in. Um, that was the season that unraveled after Rippon got hurt. And, you know, the we haven't been, <laughs> the franchise hasn't been any good since. Um Devin Hester, to me, is the all-time greatest and most electrifying returner in NFL history. There are only three special teamers in the Hall of Fame. Morton Anderson, Jan Stenerud, and Ray Guy. You know, Ray Guy passed away just in the last year, I think it was. So uh, a punter and two kickers. There are no specialists in terms of returners in the Hall of Fame. No Billy White Shoes Johnson in the Hall of Fame. Devin Hester, I do think, is going to be in the Hall of Fame. I don't know if it's going to be this go-around. You know, I think um, Joe Thomas um, looks like a lock to me um, in this 
uh, upcoming class. And I would also say that uh, Darrell Rivas, um, you know, is probably a lock in terms of the 15 finalists. I think if Devin Hester gets in, that will open up the conversation for another returner, and B. Mitch would be right there. Near, near or at the top of the list. And the all-purpose yardage thing would definitely carry a big part of the conversation. Number two to Jerry Rice with nobody really coming close to him in the three spot. But I, I, I think Joe Jacoby is the next Washington player in. And then I think everybody else is debatable, but I'm okay with nobody else being in necessarily, including, by the way, a guy like Larry Brown, who had a shortened career, even though he was an NFL MVP. But I think Devin Hester should get in, deserves to get in in front of Brian. Um, But I think if he does get in, it could open up the way for, at some point down the road, for Brian to be more seriously considered other than just on the original list, not having been a semifinalist or finalist ever. But the underrated part of Brian was how smart of a football player he was and how clutch of a football player he was. All right, uh, Nick Ackridge from Pro Football Focus next, right after these words from a few of our sponsors. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. All right, this segment of the show presented by MyBookie. They've designed a unique deposit bonus that lets you cash in and cash out quickly. It's a unique deposit bonus for sports bettors who want to focus on what to bet and not sweat the payout. Make your first deposit today. Use my promo code, KevinDC. Wager that deposit amount one time, and you're eligible to cash out. If you want a sports book that gives you the most for your money, bet on the big game with my bookie, and they've got everything for next Sunday. Pre-game, in-game, 
all the prop bets that you want to pick from. Go to my bookie where you can bet anything, anytime, anywhere. Again, use my promo code Kevin DC. Wager your deposit one time, and you're eligible to cash out. All right, joining me on the show right now uh, is Nick Ackridge. Nick has been on the show many times now. Uh, He is a D.C. sports fan. He's a Washington Commanders sports fan, but he's also a senior data analyst for Pro Football Focus. And I was just thinking, you know, as we have this week uh, in between Super Bowl um, and championship games, to kind of go back a little bit and then look forward uh, as far as Washington goes. Looking back on the 2022 season, from a pro football focus standpoint, who were the best players on the team? Like, who were the highest rated top three or four players on the team? Yeah, I mean, it it starts with Montez Sweat. He was uh, the highest rated overall player um, per PFF with 86.4. Uh, Cameron Curl was right behind him, 82.9. Jonathan Allen, 80.1. That's on the defensive side. Offensive side, it was uh, Brian Robinson, 82.5. Terry McLaurin, 79.9. Um, those are kind of the, the highest five-graded players for us. Interesting that you know Cam Curl was the second-highest-graded defensive player. By the way, where did Deron Payne end up defensively? Uh, Payne was 58.4, and it's been a huge talking point with PFF and, and Deron Payne's grade um, over this past year or so. But the big thing with, with his grade is he's had um, – we charted him with 12 missed tackles on the year. So a big thing for him is, is those quick wins, but he's not finishing the job back there, which, you know, you can make the argument that he's doing a good enough job of quickly winning and forcing the runner somewhere else. But uh, we're still charting the missed tackles, and those, those 12 missed tackles are the most among – all interior defensive linemen. So sounds to that's me kind like of why his grade is a bit lower. Sounds to me like you don't like the grade. No, I'm not a huge fan of it. I've always kind of argued maybe we shouldn't put so much emphasis on those missed tackles in the backfield, especially if he if he is forcing the runner somewhere else. Maybe still chart the missed tackles, and maybe not downgrade it as harsh. But um, that's something we've kind of gone back and forth on. You know, that's interesting, and I mean, I think a lot of the PFF discussion over the years, there have always been, you know, at times, for me and many others, there's always been a little bit of a disconnect here and there, and, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's, you know, a grade based on, obviously, the process, not necessarily always the results. I just think he was a massively impactful player this year. Um, as a disruptive force, and it's interesting that he had that many missed tackles. I would not have guessed that. I would not have guessed that, but Mm -hmm. at the same time, I think that your instinct of ultimately his disruption ended up making uh, making it easier for someone else, almost as an assist for someone else, was beneficial in a major way for the defense. I mean, I don't know what the defense would have been without him, but it wouldn't have been as good in my opinion. You agree with that? No, and, and yeah, and kind of speaking to that, I mean, it, it kind of leads to higher linebacker grades. Like you, you see a lot of times when your interior defensive linemen are, you know, kind of winning quickly in a run game, it, it helps boost the linebacker grades. And Jamin Davis is kind of a perfect example of that he finished with a sixty-two point one, and and anything for our system above sixty is um, above average. So sixty-two point one for him after his first year is is pretty promising. And you know, a lot of those missed tackles that Payne had, you know, Davis was there to kind of clean it up. And same with Holcomb. He's always kind of graded well in our system. Um, so, yeah, no, it does speak to, you know, the linebacker grades being a little bit higher with, with someone like Payne kind of, you know, um, messing the play up a bit and, and making it easier for them. And in the pass rush, Jerron Payne was, you know, 49 total pressures is up there. That's that's two more than Jonathan Allen. So the uh, pass rush was, was 
and extremely impressive for him this past year. How important is tackles for loss as a number for you guys? Yeah, I mean, it's up there. We, we definitely grade those higher than, than uh, normal tackles, but it all depends on how you get that tackle for loss. Um, so, for example, if, again, if, if Jamie Davis is, is getting there unblocked, somebody else has already missed the tackle and he's just kind of cleaning it up, it's kind of a normal point five for us. But, you know, if he's beating a block, getting the tackle in the backfield by himself, then that's going to be graded higher than, you know, just kind of a cleanup or unblock. So tackle for loss are usually going to be graded higher, but, again, there's, there's a lot of context that goes into really any single tackle. I mean, it's kind of why I'm, I'm not a huge fan of looking at tackles as a stat. I know it's kind of really the only thing we can look at for – linebackers and whatnot but there's a lot of context that goes into each tackle like what what is he doing is he beating a block is he just cleaning it up how far downfield is that tackle so stuff like that and i think that where pff grades are definitely useful obviously there's a lot of context that goes into each grade and it's something that's kind of hard to portray on twitter which is why we get so much pushback at times um but i i think it's definitely useful the, the only reason I bring it up is it's, for whatever reason, this year was one of the first years I, I paid attention to it because I think somebody at some point said, look at how high up Deron Payne and John Allen are on TFLs for the year. And what I noticed was the TFL list includes only great players. And if you go back in years, it's the same thing. Like this year, Nick Bosa, Max Crosby, Chris Jones were one, two, and three. Miles Garrett, Deron yep. Payne, J.J. Watt, Brian Burns, Zadarius Smith, Christian Wilkins, John Allen, Micah Parsons, and Josh Sweat were all in the top ten. You know, and I went back and looked in, in previous years. Last year, you know, the top players were Miller, Watt, Bosa, Donald, Parsons. And so when yep. you see obvi- the year before that was Watt, uh, Devin White, Roquan Smith, Aaron Donald, Hassan Reddick, which, by the way, I'm still – I think Cooley said this to me earlier. It's like, how didn't it work out for Hassan Reddick in Arizona? But that's a, another subject for another day. But it's just one of those stats that, for whatever reason – it's only great players that are always in 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 that in that countdown. Like there are no average players that get kind of into the mix there. Mm-hmm. You know, it's definitely different than something like sacks because again, you see sacks a lot of times boosted up. Exactly, um, Matthew Judon is kind of a perfect example this year. Like huge number in sacks, but our pass rushing grade is lower. Pressures are just kind of average, so he's been you know kind of the beneficiary of some some lucky sacks, but. No, tackle for loss, it's a good, it's a very good set. I mean, it's something that it's tough to kind of get cleanups on that, especially in the run game, just because, you know, there's, there's not a lot of time for you to really kind of get a cleanup tackle for loss. I mean, we use run stop. Um, it's kind of something we define as, you know, a win for the defense. So like a, a three yard gain on first and 10 would be considered a win for a defense or one yard, one yard gain on second and three or any sort of third down stop. And I think that, that kind of speaks to the same thing. I mean, past, this past year, the top three were Christian Wilkins, Aaron Donald, um, Roger Washington Jr., and then Jonathan Allen was fourth right behind that. So I think it kind of speaks to the same sort of thing. So Montez Sweat was the highest-rated defensive player for Washington this year. Um, mm-hmm. If you take all the quantifiables out, did your eyes tell you that he was their best defensive player? You know, it's kind of it's difficult. I think I think Cameron Curl and Jonathan Allen are. I think they're they're always going to be my one and two in whatever order. I just think Curl. Is, so important to this defense, and we saw it at the end of the year. I think Montez Sweat, um, and he led he led the team in pressures. Um, he was just constantly a force, and I think he's a very, very, very solid player. I don't know if he'll ever get to that elite level talent at edge, but I think he's just one of those really, really solid edge rushers. And and I kind of compared him a lot to Preston Smith, who we've had in the past. That 
went on to the Packers and, you know, they're both Mississippi State guys and I think they're kind of similar in that role of, you know, very solid edge rushers. They're not going to really be those top end elite kind of guys, but I think they're really solid guys to have and someone you, you should kind of prioritize keeping. Now it depends on, you know, the money and if he kind of wants the, the, the high end edge rusher money. I don't know if you kind of keep him for that, but no, I think he's a, he's a very, very solid player. Um, and yeah, the, the grades kind of speak to that. Um, I've mentioned this many times. Uh, for whatever reason, I mean, the Mississippi State defense the year that they were ranked really high, played Alabama, didn't beat Alabama. I mean, the players that have come out of that school defensively um, over the last, you know, seven, eight years, you know, Simmons, who I consider to be I consider personally Simmons to be number two behind Donald in terms of defensive tackles. I don't know where you have him. I know Quinnen Williams is outstanding. Who, who do you think is the second best interior defensive lineman in the NFL? That's a tough question. I no, I can see Simmons up there. I can see Williams up there. I think you can also, I mean, bias. You can make a case for Jonathan Allen at times, but I think it's. I think it's tough. I think there's obviously Donald's in that top tier. I kind of like to group guys in tiers rather than like one, two, three, or four. Right. And I think all of those guys are in the tier right below um, Aaron Donald. And I think you can make a case for really any of them. Right. Um, all right. So on Cam Curl, he's a free agent after next year. Um, we, you know, we all here like to think that we've learned enough to know that the franchise tag is not the path that you want to start down with a player that you really want and you want to be here for a long period of time. So if they make a move to try to extend him in this off season, have you thought about what his contract looks like? No, I mean, I think it's, it's going to be it's going to be up there with top dollars. I mean, I think that's just It's not going to be, be up there with Derwin James, is it? Isn't he at like 20 million a year? I mean, it, it's tough. I, I think that's what he's going to want. I mean, would it not be? I, I think I, it's just the safety market is so is so volatile because safety play in general is just a volatile position. I mean, you don't see a lot of the plays that they make just because, you know, they're they're usually honestly just off the screen and you just don't see them. Uh, I think Cameron Curl is just he's proven to be such a solid guy. I mean, and that's really all you want from the safety position is he's not making mistakes. He's constantly always in the right position and he's always graded highly in our system. And, and I think he's just one of those guys that you really want on the back end, no matter what position you're playing him in. I mean, he can match up in the slot. He can be a deep safety. He can come down in the box. And I think he's just proven to be extremely valuable. And like I said earlier, we saw it these past the last few weeks, the defense was just not the same without him. So many busted coverages, busted run fits, all that sort of stuff without someone like Cam Curl. Obviously, it'll be tough to, you know, really kind of give him that much money, but I think that's what he's going to look for. I mean, we've seen his dad tweet on Twitter yeah. about all the money that he wants. Um, but I think, you know, it, I, it's just it's just tough. I'm not a huge cap guy, but um, I, next year when, when our kind of our cap guy kind of goes through it, I think you could see him kind of command top 10 safety dollars, I think. I saw um, Matt Paris from the Washington Times write this maybe last week. Um, In the five games that Cameron Curl didn't play, Washington's team gave up 25 points and 332.4 yards per game. Now, I do think that there were some super short fields 
created by the offense in a couple of those games. Um, and then with Curl, they, uh, the defense allowed 18.2 uh, points per game and 293 yards per game. Um, there was no doubt that not having him, you know, in the first two, I think the first two games actually were the most noticeable, you know, because when he came back in week three, even against Philadelphia, when they had all those points in the second quarter, Washington, you could tell, was a different team defensively, even though they got blown out in that Philadelphia game because they really – um, stopped Philadelphia on the ground in that game. I mean, Philadelphia, I, I, I think if my memory serves me, averaged less than three yards per carry in that game, but they had short fields, and didn't they have a defensive touchdown? Didn't Wentz turn it over in that game really early? Or, yeah. Um, but Probably. anyway, um, <laughs> I think that's going to be like the, the, the curl Duran Payne offseason here. And you know, the, as I and I've, uh, Nick and I have talked about this before, but for now we're just assuming in like it's a normal offseason, normal ownership, and Ron and Martin and Marty and everybody can do what they want to do. I mean, who would you prioritize if I told you that you could only keep one, curl on a, on a long term extension or pain on a long term extension? Which of the two are you keeping? I think I would lean with Curl, and I I know it might be a, a bit of an unpopular opinion, but I think that sort of safety play is so important, and it helps elevate other guys too. And you can make the same argument for Payne, but I think Payne's going to command top high end dollars. I don't I don't know if Curl will. Again, I'm not a huge guy with the with the cap numbers and all that sort of stuff, but I, I me personally, I would pick Cam Curl. I think you know you have a nice interior with Jonathan Allen, and again, last year I thought. When they drafted Fidarian Mathis, I thought that, that was the replacement for Deron Payne. Right. And his injury just kind of makes everything a bit tougher. And you saw Deron Payne have a career year with his sack numbers and all that sort of stuff. So I don't know. I think there's going to be a lot of teams out there that are really going to push for Deron Payne. And I think I think Curl will cost you less money. And I, honestly, I think he might be the more important player. I know what you're saying, and the other part of this, too, is that you really don't have a replacement for Curl on the roster right now, and you might have the replacement for Payne because that's what you drafted in the second round last year. But I kind of err on the side of I just want – like I I view Deron Payne as an A player, and I don't want to give up Mm -hmm. A players. And I'm not saying that Cameron Curl isn't an A player or isn't on the verge of becoming one. But if you t- if you told me right now, like or asked me who's the better player, I would say Deron Payne is N- not not yeah, by a whole I, lot, but I would say he's the better player. And I I think I would agree. I mean, I, I don't think you can have a wrong choice here. If you if you're picking just one, I don't think you can have a wrong choice. I think you can make a very good argument for Payne, and you can make a very good argument for Curl. Obviously, we would all love for them to keep both of them. I don't know if you have the type of money for that. That all depends on the quarterback situation. If you have a young rookie quarterback you can afford to pay these guys um but no i don't think you can have really a wrong answer here right well here, uh, i'll i'll um i'll ask the follow-up to your comment uh if you had a choice if you know play general manager of keeping them both but keeping the quarterback position super low in salary including passing on maybe a big opportunity with a veteran quarterback let's just throw Derek Carr Aaron Rodgers name I mean the, the two are not similar I've been throwing out Aaron Rodgers mm-hmm. like if he actually were available I would do whatever it took 
to get him here. Um, but a lot of people, it's amazing to me, our fan base, and I don't know where you stand on this, how many people say, no, 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 we don't need him and his problems and his whatever you know he's going to bring. And he, and, I, and he was clearly in decline. Uh, just build up the offensive line, build up the defense, add some linebackers, sign Duran, extend Cameron Curl, and let's go with Sam Howell, um, as if they've got it all figured out. Um, if you've got the choice of building up around a very low-salaried quarterback position or getting somebody like Aaron Rodgers, what would you do? I I would. I don't. Know. It's so tough because we've seen them fail in both ways these past this past decade or so of going after the big name guy or trying to trade up in the draft. But I I'm a huge believer in drafting quarterbacks. I think that's really the way to build a powerhouse team. And that's honestly the goal. I mean, the goal is the Super Bowl. It should be the, the, the goal for every team. And I think the best way to do that is drafting that franchise quarterback. That's a lot tougher to do um, than me just saying, you know, just go get the guy. I think I was I was high on Howell um, last year. He was my, my quarterback number two in a week draft class. I think I would have been happy with taking him second or third round. To get him in the fifth is great. I think that if you kind of roll with him this next year, I think you could see some sort of flashes. But if we're just going off of that one game he played in the preseason to kind of bet, push all your chips on, on Sam Howell, this is the guy, I think that's absolutely insane. I think you mean, if you have a did chance... You, did, did, you just referred to it as a preseason game. Well, I was saying his last game and then his preseason game. Oh, okay. His but last yes, game in preseason. Got it. That okay. Was. All right. Yeah. You could also make the case that, that sort of was a preseason game. Um, but I think... I think if you have an opportunity to go for a guy like Rodgers, you can push all the chips in and be like, oh, "Hey, this is our last. This is our last chance." I think if you have this group, this core, you can go for it and say, "Hey, maybe we have a chance in a really weak NFC now." I mean, I think we just saw the Eagles kind of cakewalk to the Super Bowl with, you know, there's there's almost no quarterbacks in the NFC right now. Everything is in the AFC. Um, so I think you can make that argument, but it's just tough. I mean. If you don't have something in Sam Howell, you're starting over again, and then that kind of ruins the window with this core group of guys, and you're starting over again with another quarterback. And I, I think that you just need to keep swinging on quarterbacks. And I know it's it's tough to hear, and you think you know oh, you get another quarterback, and what you're wasting Sam Howell. But competition is a good thing for quarterbacks. You want them to kind of battle it out. And if if drafting a quarterback this year means that Sam Howell is like, okay, this isn't my team anymore, I'm done, then fine, you don't have the guy anyway. I think. You just got to keep swinging, and you see all of these teams now in the AFC that are ascending and that are at the top. They got their guys. They got Mahomes. They've got Allen. They've got Joe Burrow. They've got Trevor Lawrence. Like that's what you need. You need this franchise quarterback, and and it makes everything around you easier when you have that franchise guy. Yeah, what you just said has been my mantra. It just keeps swinging until you land on one. And I agree with you. Like, if there is somebody in the draft at 16 or they feel they can trade up, you know, to get a Richardson or a Levis or somebody that they really, really love, I would be totally in favor of that. To me, that's swinging. That's swinging big. Mm -hmm. Um, But I also would, I guess, disagree with you to a certain degree. They, They have tried. They just haven't landed 
as they have swung big. Yep. You know, they try, they swung at Matt Stafford and missed. They swung for Russell Wilson, and maybe it was a good thing that they missed. Um, and we don't know what the swing on Deshaun Watson may have been had Watson not had all of those issues because this organization was never going to be for Deshaun Watson. But I do know that there were people in the organization last year, you know, or, or the year before when they went after Stafford that liked Watson um, a lot. Um, and I think that, you know, they thought about trading up for, for, for Fields, too. Uh, it was Fields or somebody. Um, so I think they've thought about swinging big, but they just haven't landed. Like Alex Smith, to me, was not a big swing, you know, in, in, ter- in terms of the last administration. Um, Robert Griffin was the last real big swing they took and landed on. And that was a mm-hmm. major trade-up. Yeah. I think. No, and I Unless think, I'm missing one. No, I, I think you're right. I mean, obviously the last rookie quarterback, Dwayne Haskins, just kind of fell to them. They didn't have to really go up again. Right. So I, I think you're right with that. And the RG3 thing seemed to work out, obviously, without the injuries and that whole debacle afterwards. But I, I think you can make an argument for both because, again, like you said, they've, they've swung at big free agent quarterbacks before. Sometimes they miss. Sometimes they get their, like you said, big free agent quarterback. I don't know if you would put Alex Smith in that. It hasn't worked out. They've swung in the draft. hasn't worked out. And fans just kind of want to give up on both. Like, I mean, you have to keep swinging. Like, you can't give up on it. I understand that, you know, if you, you see something like the Robert Griffin trade or you see a Dwayne Haskins picking him and that kind of setting your franchise back, but you have to keep doing that. I mean, I agree. You, you can't just yeah. stop just because, you know, it didn't work out that one time. You have to keep going for it. And, again, if somebody falls to them at 16 that they really like, you have to take him. I, I think it would be crazy if you don't. If there's a chance for them to trade up for the right price to go get their guy, I think you have to do that. I, you have to continue to swing at the quarterback position because it's really the first thing that matters and the only thing that matters. And you you can't really be successful long term in this league without a franchise guy. Yeah, I, we're in agreement there. And I think the thing that worries me sometimes about this group is that they they they'll look at you know Brock Purdy. Um, and they'll say, mm-hmm. well, we can do that. Well, no, you can't because yeah. you're not Kyle Shanahan and that staff. Um, and by the way, you don't have anywhere near the team around him. And oh, by the way, um, who knows what would have happened here. They may have been eliminated even if he had been healthy. Although, to be honest with you, the way San Francisco's defense played that first half, um, I think if Purdy had stayed healthy, the 49ers would have had a, a really good chance to win the game. Um, we're talking to Nick Ackridge. Uh, one more thing kind of about the overall Washington season. So Brian Robinson Jr. ended up being the the highest-ranked offensive player. You know, last year, remember, it was we were in a really good spot, and then COVID came, et cetera. We had the injuries, and, you know, if not for that, we would have been a playoff team, the whole thing. I wonder if, you know, uh, they look at the, the Brian Robinson Jr., a player that they really like, that they really want to pound their chest about getting right in the third round and say, man, if we had just had him earlier in the season, we would have been a playoff team. Do you think they would have been a playoff team had they had Brian Robinson Jr. from the beginning? I don't think so. Um, I, I at, at PFF, we're supposed to hate running backs. That's just kind of what we do. But I think yeah. I think Brian Robinson is another good example of you know, just not drafting running backs early, not paying running backs because you can find these guys in the third, the fourth round, like you found Isaiah them, Pacheco, seventh round. Isaiah Pacheco. Yeah, you you find these guys all the time in these late rounds. 
And it sucks to say for the running back position and these guys, but you draft them, you let them play out their rookie contracts, you draft them another one. You, you just kind of keep that rotation going. And I think the running game is more so the offensive line than it is the running back itself. I think the running back can make more out of it, depending on how good he is, and that's kind of what speaks to our grades. Like the higher you grade is the more you're taking out of the, the you know, what the blocking is giving you, essentially. You're making people miss, you're getting more yards than what's really kind of given to you. And Brian Robinson is a very good running back at that. And I, but I don't think that he elevates the team any higher and you know, leads them to more wins and you know, potentially the playoffs. Because Antonio Gibson in our system was the third highest graded player. He was 76.3 overall. That's, so I, it just kind of yeah. speaks to the running back position being something that's very replaceable, very something that you can really just kind of trade in and out of. And I know fans don't like that because we, we kind of fall in love with these guys. And Brian Robinson's story is incredible. He's a great athlete, and I think I think he can be a running back of the future here for the next couple of years or so. But we've kind of seen this happen before with running backs all the time. You just kind of you just continue to cycle them in and out, and that sucks for them. That sucks for the position itself. But that's just kind of the way it, it's gone these past couple of years. Yeah, meantime, Bijan Robinson will probably be a, a top fifteen pick in the draft uh, this year. Somebody will end up taking yeah. him, um, and yeah. he'll be he'll be a top. 10 running back the second he enters the league, but I don't know how much that elevates your team. I mean, Saquon Barkley is a perfect example. He's already a top five running back the second he stepped into the league, but the Giants were still three wins, four wins, five wins, and that's just kind of the nature of the running back position. You know, that that's a conversation, a deeper conversation for another day, but the, I would also say, just intuitively, that scheme has a lot to do with it as well. Like, if you've got yep. a Derrick Henry with kind of a a dual-threat quarterback, you know, and, and Tannehill has been that for, you know, certainly when um, Arthur Smith was there in, in calling plays, um, it can be uh, it can be a devastating attack, and it can be worth twelve wins and a number one seed. Mm-hmm. Now, what happens after that? Who knows? All right, um, a few more for you. Uh, I know you told me before we started this that you've started to look at the quarterbacks in the draft, but you've evaluated three of them: Bryce Young, mm-hmm. Hendon Hooker, your guy because you're a Tennessee guy, and Anthony Richardson, a guy that I've been talking about since the beginning of the season, the Utah game, which I think may have been the best game he played all year. So, um, but obviously, you know C.J. Stroud, and you know Will Levis. I mean, you're an SEC football fan. So tell me what you think overall of the quarterbacks in this draft. I think it's an extremely intriguing class. I think there's there's high-end stuff with a lot of these guys, but there's also some deserving questions. Like Bryce Young, I think, is one of the smartest quarterbacks I've ever scouted. Uh, he's just... He's so good pre-snap. He knows exactly what's coming. He knows where the ball needs to go all the time. He's good within the pocket, but the question is going to be his size. Like he is—he's tiny. Like he is like Kyler Murray's height, but skinnier. He's not a big guy at all. And there's going to be legit questions there. But we've seen him play SEC schedules. I saw him in the Tennessee game. It just killed every single play. It seemed like, and he's just constantly popping back up. Um, so I think there's going to be questions there with with his kind of size, but I think he's an incredible quarterback um, and someone I would definitely bet on. Um, Hendon Hooker is, like you said, he's my guy. I, I love Tennessee. I love for what he did for Tennessee. Had an incredible year. I don't know how he'll translate to the NFL. I'm not a huge fan of him as a prospect. I think a lot of times that offense kind of presented him with easy reads. It was just kind of first read if it wasn't there, and you just take off. Um, that's not to say he can't do it. Uh, we've seen this in the past with a lot of quarterback prospects. 
Justin Herbert's kind of a perfect example in that Oregon offense. Right. You couldn't really see what he was fully capable of. And then you saw it in the NFL, and you're like, okay, wow, a lot of people missing it. But you just didn't see it, so you didn't really know if he could do it. And that could be the same thing with Hendon Hooker. The injury kind of throws things off a lot, I think. That ACL thing will, will really push him back a bit. But I think that might be good because you can give him some time to really kind of learn the NFL offense and learn to play within the NFL. Um, I think his arm strength is top tier. His deep ball accuracy is, is up there. He had some misses, obviously, but I think it's kind of with, with the best of them. But, you know, you just don't know what you can get with his anticipation play and kind of stuff within the pocket. It's just there's too many questions there to really kind of take a swing with him early. All right, so tell me about a guy that I've talked about all season long. I'm really intrigued. I loved watching him play. There were games, clearly, for me, I was like, ah, doesn't look great. Um, Anthony Richardson, at this point, I don't think he's going to be there at 16, but you said you've evaluated him. What do you think? He is so intriguing. I I think the tools are obviously there. Everyone talks about it. I think he's just – if you're just looking at just tools, I think he's the number one quarterback in this draft. There are obviously questions with his accuracy, and that's a huge concern. And I think it's what drives him down more. But he is not your typical just a tools type of quarterback that you know can't really play within a system. He showed consistently that he can work within a pocket and he can really play the quarterback at a high level position. I mean, there is there is tons of plays that I've picked out where he is you know identifying coverages quickly, identifying blitzes. Staying, working within the pocket, working through his progressions, and it's really high-end stuff. Like it, it is really impressive to see. The accuracy is concerning. You see him a lot of times getting through his progressions, making the right read, making the right decision, and then it's just overthrown, underthrown, um, in front, all that sort of stuff. And a lot of that has to do with footwork. Yeah. But that's something that you can clean up. That's something you can work on with him. Um, you can't teach the arm strength. You can't teach the, the mobility and all that sort of stuff, but you can work on footwork. Um, and I think he's someone worth taking a big swing on. I really do. Uh, the, the tools are all there, and if you can get it to, you know, if you can kind of fix that accuracy, I think you can look at him being a, a really, really great quarterback in this league because I think he's shown that he can play the quarterback position at a high level. Um, so do you think he'll be there at 16? I, I don't. I think someone's going to take a, take a shot at him. I, I think – like I said, the, the tools are all there, and it's. I think he has the most intriguing prospect in this draft. Um, so I don't think he'll be there at 16. I do too. What about the kind of offense that you would want to play with him? Do you think it's Lamar Jackson, or do you think it's you know something of a hybrid between Jackson and, and something else? You know, West Coast no, or whatever. I, I think you – I think you can put him into a normal NFL-style passing offense, and he can show that he can succeed. Again, the accuracy is the issue, but he showed in college that he can get through you know, a normal progression tree and, and route tree and all that sort of stuff. He can, he can do that. I don't think you need to put him in a Lamar Jackson-style offense and force him to run, run, run. That could help him early on, um, just kind of get his feet wet and get more experience. But I think you can see him in an NFL offense, and you can see him you know, succeed. Obviously, the accuracy will always be the question, and – it's tough to kind of, you know, keep going with a guy if he has accuracy issues. But no, I think you can see him kind of work through an awful often. Do we know right anything? Really. Do we know anything beyond what you've watched and graded out, and I've watched as a college football fan, which are the things we never know that these teams do, you know, a ton of due diligence on, and that is 
what kind of person he is, what kind of, you know, does he love football? Does he study? Is he a quick learner? Do we know any of those things about Anthony Richardson? No, I I haven't looked too far into that just yet. I mean, you think you hear a lot of that when the combine kind of rolls around and stuff like that. But, I mean, I I haven't seen any red flags or heard of any red flags just yet in that sort of that sort of uh, area, but um, yeah, no, I think you we'll, we'll see it a lot more as the draft process really starts to pick up. Because I was thinking about this, um, I think first of all, it's six four and two forty, two thirty five, two forty. If you didn't watch Anthony Richardson play, I mean, he's a bigger version of Lamar Jackson as a runner. I mean, he has got great vision, great wiggle, unbelievable speed and power um, as a runner. He's got a big arm and. And Nick nailed it. I mean, the footwork is terrible at times, which leads to the inaccuracy. I mean, I th- you know, I've seen some games in which I, I think he gets down on himself a little bit too quickly, um, which bothered me a couple of times in, in watching him this year. I think it's one of those things that as we move through the spring towards the draft, if he's not a top half of the uh, draft selection, then there's something that they learned about him that they didn't love you know, beyond the physical, because the physical stuff in the way in, in the number of teams that will commit to playing football, you know, even early in his career, you know, as a dual threat quarterback, there are enough teams out there that will commit to that for a guy like this. And I, I just think he I think he's going before 16. And I think what's interesting about this team, as we've talked about before, the emphasis on, you know, wanting to be a physical downhill running team. Well, Sam Howell is, you know, certainly capable of that as well. But I would personally, as long as the, the you know, the other stuff that we don't know about checked out, I would not pass on him at 16 if he's there. And I would think about moving up a few spots if I were Washington for him. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. I think he's the type of guy um, you, you bet on. Obviously, you said we don't know what he's like off the field, mentality and all that sort of stuff. But I think if you're just betting on the tools, there's nobody better to bet on tools like it's that's just kind of what you want to look at. And the Florida, the Florida team that he was on, it's not Florida team to pass. They no, were it's really not. Bad. They were t- terrible on defense. Their receivers, yeah, their receivers are not great. I mean, there's a lot of passes that he is laying on the money and they're dropping, which leads to the completion percentage being down a bit. Now his adjusted completion percentage, which which we adjust for drops and all the throwaways and all that sort of stuff, still wasn't that high again because there is accuracy concerns. But there are a lot of plays where his wide receivers are kind of just either not on the same page with him. The offensive line was not great. I think it's – yeah, th- that Florida team was not great. And It's also one of their worst defensive teams that we've seen them have in a while. I mean, the one th- – Yeah, and he is yeah. – Yeah, go ahead. Sorry. Yeah, he's forced to throw because the defense is so yeah. good. He's forced to throw constantly right. over and over and over again, and there's just leads to maybe 40, 50-plus attempts. So. Yeah, they. I don't know. Um, the kid from uh, Maryland, Jacob Copeland, who transferred from Florida to Maryland, and Maryland was low. You know, Terps were loaded at wide receiver as they seem to always be. Copeland would have been better off staying um, at Florida. Uh, he would have been their number one guy um, this year. Um, all right, ba- just back to Washington for for one moment now, since we're talking about quarterbacks in the draft. So right now on February third. Give me your guess on the quarterbacks that enter training camp in 2023. I think it's I think it's Sam Howell. I think it's I think they draft another guy maybe later. Um, maybe you look at a Hendon Hooker type of guy and you draft him, and then I think you look veteran backup. I think you look at a Bridgewater, 
Um, you look at um, maybe a Jacoby Brissett, something like that. I think they do want to really roll with Howell. I mean, I, I again, we're, we're kind of looking at it with you know a normal offseason ownership is the same and all that sort of stuff. But I think that you kind of roll with Howell, and I think you have to see what you what you have there. I mean, I, it could be seeming like punning on the next year if he, if he doesn't work out. But maybe if he doesn't work out, you're leading to a, a high pick and a, and a really high end quarterback class next year. But no, I, I think it's going to be Howell leading the way and maybe a veteran backup and then another rookie. Yeah, I, I think it's Howell and a veteran backup too. I've guessed, you know, between Brissett and, and Dalton and Keenum and, you know, a guy like that. Because for me, and I don't know how you feel, I think if Brissett or Dalton had been the quarterback this year, um, you know, uh, instead of Carson Wentz and Taylor Heineke, I actually think they would have won another game or two. And they probably would have made the mm-hmm. postseason. They wouldn't have been, you know, a, a threat in the postseason. But I think that the quarterback play in the offense would have been better with a guy like Brissett. I definitely think so with Dalton. What do you think? No, I I completely agree because I think Brissett and Dalton are very smart in what they know they they can and can't get away with. Um, so I, they're conservative in nature, and I think that would have led to maybe, unlike you said, another win or two and wouldn't see the, the volatility of, of Wentz and Heineke kind of show up. All right. Um, two more for Nick Ackridge. Uh, is there anything at the end of the year that all of you guys at PFF are surprised at? Maybe something that you thought you were convinced was right that isn't, or maybe the opposite of that, something that you were you thought you were wrong about that you're right about, just something that you learned. I mean, is there anything like that at the end of the year? Because the sport's always evolving, um, and maybe you don't have an answer for that. Maybe I didn't you know, articulate it uh, well enough. But is there anything at the end of the year that you guys learned about this season? No, I, I think – I think the Brock Purdy situation is is kind of a huge, real question mark because again, at PFF we're huge believers in the quarterback position, and that's really the thing that matters the most, and that's what kind of elevates your team the most. But we saw with Brock Purdy kind of come in and just he was fine and and just let his team to continue win, win after win after win. And his numbers in PFF weren't great. There were a lot of turnover worthy plays that weren't capitalized on by the defense. But I think the Brock Purdy question is is going to lead a lot of teams to really kind of change the way they they sort of build their 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 team. If you can get all pro guys at every single position like the Niners have, if you can get a great teamed-up offense like the Kyle Shanahan offense, there, there are questions about the way he coaches and his conservative nature when it comes to fourth down and stuff like that. Um, but if you can get that sort of offense, all pro players around all these positions, and you just kind of get a guy that can just kind of you know not make mistakes, you could make maybe make another run like like the 49ers did, but you saw that kind of all crum, crumbling down when they're on their fourth, fifth quarterback or whatever, and that's just really just bad luck on, on their part. But I think the Brock Purdy situation is interesting because you we're big believers in drafting quarterbacks high, and then you, you get a guy drafted with the very last pick, and he comes in and doesn't lose a game until the conference championship, which he was actually injured in. So I think that's kind of the big question and something we can really look back on and maybe – hey, maybe you don't have to go all in on drafting quarterback high. Yeah, I I talked about this on the show last week. Um, I forget if it was this podcast or the radio show, but I went through kind of, you know, basically if you look at um, uh, the the, the last 10 years of quarterbacks drafted, you know, essentially 12 were all top half of the first round. 
Um, and then the other six, I mean, the, the lowest round was obviously Purdy at the end of the year, but really it was Dak in the fourth round. And this is, you know, Cousins was before the last 10 years. And then really the other teams were made up of a lot of veteran quarterbacks that were all, you know, either great quarterbacks or, you know, significant long-term veteran quarterbacks, Stafford, Brady, et cetera. And so the Bryce, the, the Brock Purdy model is really the – diamond in a rough and by the way the surroundings have to include not only as you said finding pro bowlers at at, at virtually every position group but having an outstanding coaching staff that you know out schemes just about everybody and so I I still think you know trying to find the franchise quarterback is the best way to ensure for a period of, of you know five plus years, you've got a chance to win double digit games every year and be in and, and, and be in the tournament. The dog's ready for you to jump off this thing. Um and you're ready to, you know, and, and you've got a chance to to swing at a postseason run more often than not. I mean I I don't know. It's yeah. I, I think teams would make the mistake looking at the Brock Purdy thing and saying, Oh, we can do that too. Yeah, and I, I think the Brock Purdy situation also kind of leads to another thing. Like when it comes to drafting quarterbacks, maybe you stop looking at guys with these 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 tools, these high end tools, but haven't really kind of put it all together, and you look more towards the the type of college quarterbacks that have played five six years in college, yeah, and have you know really been through a lot of of games and you know have had a lot of experience. Maybe you kind of look towards those type of quarterbacks in the future. But no, Brock Purdy kind of leads. Me, to a lot of questions when it comes to team building and, and quarterback drafting. I think that last point's a really good one. I'd love to see some sort of study of the guys that played for three plus years and how you know mm-hmm. h- how much uh, of a career they had versus the guys that were incredibly talented but played for you know only one year. Um, all right, uh, who do you like in the Super Bowl? I think it's the Chiefs. I I keep the the way the Eagles. I know it's it's the fan in me and the DC fan, and I don't really like anything Philly. But the way they got to the Super Bowl, it was one of the easiest trips we've ever seen to the Super Bowl. I, I think ever. I mean, one of the easiest schedules you've ever seen. They play Daniel Jones and Josh Johnson essentially to get to the Super Bowl, and they have an incredible team. They have a great team. You know, Pro Bowl, All Pro players at a lot of huge key positions, and Jalen Hurts has been really great this year. But I don't know if they've ever really been kind of questioned. And again, if I'm not a Commanders fan, I'm probably not saying all this sort of stuff. But um, I just think you look at the Chiefs, and I think Mahomes is the best quarterback in the NFL. Um, I think they have, I think they have it all. You know, there's questions at wide receiver position without a Tyreek Hill, but he's kind of proven to, you know, ascend above that. So I think it's the Chiefs. That's where I'll be putting my money. And yeah. Just kind of hoping it is them. You know, it's funny. The 91 Skins, who I consider to be the greatest team in franchise history and one of the great, if not the greatest, Super Bowl teams of all time, USA Today um, uh, has them, you know, wrote a story a few years ago uh, listing Washington's 91 team as the greatest Super Bowl winner. Um, And the DVOA metric, Football Outsiders, has Washington's 91 team as the greatest Super Bowl winner. But, but they faced. Two run-and-shoot teams led by Chris Miller and Eric Kramer in the postseason, Atlanta and Detroit, before they got to Jim Kelly and Buffalo. Um, but they were um, they had a very easy postseason. Now, they had to go through the gauntlet in their own division, 
Um, but right. they uh, they had a very easy, you know, two game swing at home against the Falcons and the Lions um, in the postseason uh, to get to the Super Bowl. But you know, you don't pick your opponents when you get to the postseason. Uh, you don't pick them before no. the season either. It's not like college where you schedule, you create schedules no. on your own. Um, great job as always. I really appreciate it. Uh, Nick does such a really good job for Pro Football Focus. He's a huge DC sports fan. I would encourage you to follow him on Twitter at pff underscore Nick Ackridge spelled A K R I D G E. I will talk to you soon. Thanks. Take care. Yep. Thanks as always. Andy Poland's going to jump on with me. We'll talk about, who knows, Bobby Beathard and a lot of different things. We'll finish up the show that way next, right after these words from a few of our sponsors. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Andy Poland's going to join me here momentarily. This final segment of the show is presented by Window Nation. They've got the coolest deal ever for keeping you warm. Put no money down, make no payments, and pay no interest for 24 months. That's two years, 0% financing, plus buy two, get two free with no limit. Take advantage of Window Nation's deep discounts, all the while reinvesting in your biggest asset, your home, not to mention the energy savings for years to come. Call Window Nation at 866-90-NATION or go online at windownation.com. Mention my name. You'll get a free estimate. There's nothing to lose. 866-90-NATION or online at windownation.com. Andy is with me, and we were just talking before we started to record this podcast, and I said to you, I said... We we asked each other. We have, we we talk. Andy and I text back and forth, and we talk every once in a while. And I said, "How are you doing?" And you said, "Fine." And you said, "How are you doing?" And I said, "Fine." And we started talking about the various shows that we're involved in. And I and I said to you, I said, "I think I had this conversation with Scott recently." But when football season is over, what I've realized in recent years, and maybe more so this year. I don't love sports as much as I used to. I'm not as consumed with it as much as I used to. You know, I'm. You know me. I'm watching basketball. I'm watching Maryland basketball, of course. Um, but football season, I love. You know, I, I love that. But um, you, you gave me the explanation as to why. Um, it's not as much fun as it used to be. Tell everybody what you told me. Well, I mean, when I was coming up and, and as a sports fan and then, you know, segueing into being a, what they call a sportscaster, 
the the sources of information were were somewhat limited. You had newspapers, you had the AP UPI wires, and you had a limited number of games on TV. Now you just swim in it all the time, and it's you got to be on Twitter all the time. You've got to be on the various websites, and you never really get away from it. And you feel like even if you've been away for like ten minutes, you've missed something. And I don't know, maybe it's just overexposure to it. And, and you know, it used to be like, I remember uh, talking to my friend, uh, you know, Mike Stone, who's been doing radio in Detroit. For uh, I, I've years. heard you mention his name before. Yeah, we worked for George Michael years ago. Yeah. We went to college together at AU and uh, we, you know, learned the ropes there at the college station. And he used to know everything. And, and one time I said, how do you know that? Just, I never miss a transaction. Meaning he would read every little agony <laughs> in the newspaper and to, to get everything. Well, now, you know, you, you get it all the time. All the little transactions, you know, you got, Adam Schefter makes $9 million a year to spit these little things out 24 hours a day. And, and I just think it's, it's just like too much. It's, it's, and, and for, for younger people, you know, it's, it's fine. They're, you know, that's how they've grown up. But for those of us who kind of had to earn our knowledge on it to be assaulted by it 24 hours a day, maybe, you know, I'm a little burned out on it. I mean, you are, too. You and I have talked about it. You know, I say I'm burned out on it. And then football season's always rejuvenation. Like, I love the football season rhythm calendar. Um, it's also, no. as you and I both know, it's easier to do during football season. There's just a lot yeah. of, you know, there's a lot of content. There's a lot of scheduled stuff um, because it's a scheduled sport. Um, but um, I think, you know, I, I remember, look, you had to do this. I didn't. You had to do a radio show before the Internet. I don't know how yeah. Ken Beatrice did it. Well, we do know that the, some of it was completely, you know, made up. Um, made but up. Yeah. I don't know how I, I would sit here for three hours on radio in in particular by myself, you know, every day and do a, a, a radio show without the internet. I mean, the amount of preparation that you'd have to put in, um, I don't know if it would be ultimately worth it. Well, I, I don't know really of anybody prior to the start of sports radio that did three hours. And if you did three hours, you usually had a partner yeah. and more guests and things like that. Well, Beatrice but, didn't. Well, no, but Beatrice, Beatrice was on for like two hours, I think. No, I no, think no, Andy. There were nights the, uh, on MAL way back in the day. He yeah. was on 7 to 10, and then he had – I remember one year he had scheduled it was like 10 to 1 a.m., <laughs> I mean, you know, he he was okay, but he was, yeah. He was also he was also caller dependent. Like right. like you know, we, in those days, True. you know, I do I do a show mostly without calls. You you do a lot of your show without calls, and you can do it, and you can also you know take recorded interviews, which I do a lot off uh, you know the various shows, Dan Patrick and uh, Rich Eisen, and you know so you have content like that. But yeah, they were very much caller driven, and given that that was the only show there was, that's the only place that the callers could go. So, you know, you had that. But, you know, it, it, was, it was different then in that he was the source of the information. He was the Internet. And, you know, you could believe what he was saying or not believe it, but he, he was all there was. <laughs> and, and now 
everybody has the same sources of information that you do, right? It, it, you know, the sources that, that you and I use, Twitter and, and yeah. the various sites, SI.com, yeah, SI.com, yeah. everybody has those. You know, you, you had, when, what he had as, was the wires, and he had the newspapers and allegedly sauces, uh, but you know that 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 was different now. It's not, not for schoolboy ball. Not day. for schoolboy ball. Yeah, right. He didn't have well, he didn't have, he didn't have the sauces or resources for schoolboy ball. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So <laughs> yeah. you know, I think I think that has a lot to do with it. You know, and I, I look at my son, who's who's. A, uh, I mean, he grew up uh, understanding that. Uh, yeah, this isn't as glamorous as, as some might think it is, and he got into teaching. But his knowledge of sports, especially the things he's really into, like college basketball. It's deeper than mine because he cares more about it and studies all the websites and message boards and things like that. You know, it yeah. is. Yeah. Well, it's. Um, you know, I think. I think in our. Well, I mean, you and I have had so many of these conversations on the air and off the air together, but. You know, mm-hmm. when we hear from people that say do more caps or do more wizards or do more this, I think one of the benefits actually of doing what we do in this city is that you really have to know one team so much more than the other. And by the way, have to have passion for that team to a certain degree, have to have, or at least previous life passion um, for the team, have to have some understanding of the team. Um, But, you know, there are other markets where, you know, you go from one season and one sport into another season, and that next sport is just as important as the one that you just came out of. That's not the case here. Some. Yeah, I mean, I don't know how it is now with the Rams, especially winning a Super Bowl, but but some years ago, uh, knowing people who did sports talk in L.A., they said, oh, yeah, Lakers number one by a mile, right. Dodgers number two. Yeah. And and now maybe maybe that's been upped a little bit by, by the NFL, but here, Philadelphia, I worked in Dallas. Um, New York is different because that's a baseball town, but, but I would say that, that most cities, Football's king. It's it's what you talk about most of the year. Look at the ratings. Did, did, I mean, I'm sure you talked about. It. You, you saw the ratings yeah. for the Cincinnati Kansas City game. Ridiculous. Half, yeah. Yeah. Fifty million people. Half a Super Bowl for that. It's unbelievable. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you know the um, the city that a, a very good friend of ours and your longtime um, co-host is now. I guess mm-hmm. you know. Right. He, I, I mean, I, I think he was born and raised there. The way the way he talks about <laughs> Milwaukee, um, but I do think yeah. that that city is you know Packers driven, of course. But they've got a really good NBA team. You know, there's a baseball team that's been pretty good and competitive. They've got the University of Wisconsin there, which is a big deal to those to people in those states. So he's got a. I think he, I think his new city, his new adopted city, Zabe, we're talking about. I think he's mm-hmm. got to. Lo- I think he's got to do a lot more in terms of really understanding the other teams. Or am I wrong about that? No, I, I think he does. And and also, I I discovered this about the sports radio business uh, working in New York, and and I I soon realized that if I was going to have a future in it, it wasn't going to be there. That the people who have done the best in each of the cities are New Yorkers. Mike and the Mad Dog are New Yorkers. That's why if, if you had dropped that show in the middle of Chicago, it wouldn't have near the success that it had. And and it's difficult for, for a guy like Zabe. But I, I think I look at Zabe a little bit like Tony. 
Tony Kornheiser in that, you know, he came to Washington in 1979. And before sports radio started, which would have been, what, uh, 12, 13 years later, he had uh, name recognition through his newspaper column and knowledge of the city. Zabe didn't just start doing a, a, a talk show in Milwaukee. He was on a very popular morning show in Milwaukee as yes, like a 50-minute right. guest yeah. you know, for years. So he had, he had footing down there. But, yeah, I mean, the, the days of being dropped into a new city and being able to do a sports talk show, those days are gone. You have to have some institutional and historic knowledge to be able to do this. I think that's always been true. I mean, I think going back yeah. many years, the the shows before, long before I got into the business, and you had been in in doing it for for the station after being a part of the founding of the station in '92. Mm-hmm. Um, I I always preferred the people that were from those cities doing those shows that really had true understanding and passion for the local teams. I think it always works out better that way. I'm sure there are uh, examples of where, um, you know, it's, it's, it's somebody from out of town ends up being super popular in a new town. But for, for, for the most part, the sports talk radio format is done better by people who are fans of the teams locally. And if they're not fans, they have intimate knowledge of the market in the teams. Um, yeah, well, look, you know, Bobby Bether just passed away. Yeah, I'm going to ask you. You and I were able to do, do do long sections on 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 him. If if you just came to Washington, even if you're old enough to have remembered Bobby Bethard as the general manager of the then Redskins, you wouldn't be able to talk about it in the depth that you and I were able to do do it. Don't you think? Yeah, of course. I mean, um, yeah. we 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 lived through it. So I had Charlie. Casserly on the show um, yesterday, mm-hmm. and you know he said something that I, I found interesting. I said, "Why did it end with Bobby Bethard here?" And he said, "Bobby will take Bobby's taken that to his grave." And I said, mm-hmm. "Well, it's always been kind of you know understood, right, that." He and Gibbs, maybe they didn't have a falling out, but that Gibbs just wanted a little bit more control um, over personnel. And Charlie kind of interrupted me and he said, Joe had plenty of control. That is not the reason. And anybody that thinks that reason is 100% wrong. Which I wow. and I'm ta- I was talking to Tommy about this yesterday, and Tommy goes, "That was always my understanding as to why it ended here. Was that your understanding as to why it ended here?" Yeah, that that he uh, he was uh, the way it worked in the early days is if they had a dispute over something, took it to cook. That, uh, the cook would make the final right. final call on that, and sometimes they were united on some things, like you know, getting Wilbur Marshall, where they had to give up two first round picks you know, prior to the days of free agency to get them, and, and they worked together to convince Cook to do that. But if there was a dispute, Cook would, would side with one of them. And I, what I had heard was that Bethard was feeling that Cook was siding too many times with Joe on that. Um, the, the other story is his parents were getting older. He wanted to get back to the West Coast, which he did going to San Diego. So so I don't really know, but uh, when – and I know you played some of this uh, – when – Bethard went in the Hall of Fame. Gibbs did the induction video for him. I guess right. Bobby had already had some signs of Alzheimer's at that point and couldn't give a speech. Yeah. So whatever happened, they were able to, to smooth that out over the years. Yeah, uh, but it sounds to me like that didn't – Charlie was adamant 
Um, Charlie was adamant that that was not the case. And him saying Mm -hmm. it so emphatically that, you know, uh, he's never going to divulge Charlie the reason Bobby Beathard left and Bobby's taken that to his grave, to me, turned it into a bit of a mystery for those of us that mm-hmm. have followed the team. And, you know, I'm, 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 I wonder what it was. Who knows? Um, uh, you know what else was curious, too, what? Kevin, about, about his departure? Uh, because it doesn't usually happen this way. Bobby Beathard didn't leave immediately after the 1988 season. He did the draft that year and, and, and made I the I thought he left right before the draft. No, no, he. he oh no, no, no! no. The, the, the I, I thought he left after the '88. I thought he left after after the '88 season before the '89 draft. Right, but but usually when a GM leaves a team, he leaves at the end of the season before the draft. He stayed for the draft and then left. He didn't. He didn't stay through that following season. Right. And he's the one that made the draft day deal, trading Mike Oliphant for, for Ernest Biner, Ernest Biner yeah. which was really key for that last Super Bowl. So yeah, I, I was that was kind of interesting. I I don't think have you ever seen that before that a, that a GM will stay through a draft and then leave? I, I don't remember that. Uh I didn't remember it that way to begin with to be honest. I know he handled the 88 draft because I remember the elephant for Ernest Biner trade. Um and I also mm-hmm. remember the Jim Lachey for Jay Schrader. Uh, trade, which was that summer as well, which he made. Well, that was actually that, that, that's an interesting story too. Is that the the Raiders? I guess the Raiders played at Washington. Lachey plays in that game. They go back right. to Los Angeles, is where they were, and that's when they traded Jay Schrader. And that's an amazing thing too, because Schrader had been demoted to third string because he was very unhappy about the fact that you know he lost his job to Doug Williams and he wasn't going to play. So you got an unhappy player who you know probably was eventually going to be cut, and he managed to trade him for a guy who was the best left tackle in the game for about three or four years. Amazing. Yeah. I don't know if I've ever told you this story, but it's it's. Um... I, you know, my first job was working at Channel 5 for Buck and for yeah. Ernie. And um, mm-hmm. that training camp was my first, like, I, I, I was an intern and they, they literally hired me full time as I was an intern and sent me to Carlisle that summer. So there I am, mm-hmm. you know, a fr- you know, fresh faced, you know, not really knowing anything about what I'm doing. And, you know, Ernie and Buck said, you know, go with, you know, whichever cameraman it was, go over and get some sound. And, um, you know, and I said, well, I'm going to, I'm going to ask, you know, I'm going to ask Gibbs about the Schrader thing. I'm going to ask Schrader about it because this is being rumored that he's going to be traded. And so right before kind of what we used to call the uh, gangbang, where everybody, you know, all the mics and cameras are, you know, with Gibbs and then with Schrader. Um, the PR guy at the time, and I think his name was Charlie Dayton, I think was his name. Yes, I remember and, Charlie. Yeah, yep. and, and he came over to a lot of us and said, hey, Joe's going to come over, nothing about Jay Schrader. <laughs> nothing about Jay Schrader. And so, <laughs> so I'm like, <laughs> well, wait a minute. Like, that's pretty much all anybody wants to know about. So I'm sitting there, and people are firing questions away, and no one's asking about Schrader. And I just said, what the hell? I said, Coach, I said, what's your response to some of the stories out there that Jay Schrader is going to get traded? And he 
stared with a glare at me. And then, and, and I look, I, I, I'm looking at him and it's just this long glare. And he said, yeah, I don't have anything to say about that. And like, I think he was expecting that no one would ask. And of course, Ernie and Buck loved it. Like I brought it back and they're like, oh, they're just the reaction alone is perfect. We're going to run this. But God, man, that Charlie Dayton was pissed and registered all these complaints. And I said, well, I don't know. I just thought you should ask that because that's what everybody wants to know. Nobody cares about whether or not your backup left tackle is going to play, you know, a a series or two in the preseason game because it was during the preseason. Yeah, yeah, you know that, that that also illustrates how media was so different then, and, and and we felt that when Gibbs came back because the first year Zabe and I did the radio show with Gibbs. Yeah, the second year we did not. I know, I because remember. Because we asked him actual, <laughs> yeah, asked him actual questions, which he he wasn't, you know, because the media that he did uh, his first time around, you know, what his 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 radio show was. His radio show was a script that Charlie Dayton wrote that he used to read on WTOP, and it lasted, I don't know, 90 seconds, two minutes, oh, something wow. like that. And that's, that's all he did. So to, to be actually asked actual questions like, hey, coach, how come you're not running the shotgun? You know, it's, it's 2004, and 31 other teams in the league are doing it. You know, things like that that he didn't like. So, well, you know, uh, that's that's funny. that's the Buck story. You know, when Buck asked him, yeah. uh, when oh, Buck yeah. was out yeah. of practice before the Bears playoff game, this would have been after the 84 season. The 84 season, they're playing the Bears in the divisional round at home on New Year's Eve, 1984. Practice leading up to facing that Bears defense. This was not the 85 Bears, but the precursor, which they were a hell of a defense already in the making. And they oh. were practicing the shotgun, and Buck noticed it and asked Gibbs, I saw that you were practicing the shotgun. And Gibbs Gibbs is like, you gotta be kidding me. What do you I mean? And of course they 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 I think they ran it once, maybe. Theisman got sacked, I think, seven times in that playoff game. Yeah, though they actually they did run the shotgun once and Rich Donnelly, because Bostic was hurt, Rich yeah. Donnelly snapped it over Theisman's head. Yeah. And and that was that was the last that Gibbs ran it. So that's nineteen eighty four. Four, yeah. he doesn't run it again until 2005, I think. You well, know, including he, the 11 years he was he was away. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he didn't want, he, he didn't run. He hated the shotgun even when he came back. Um, mm-hmm. All right, what are your memories of Bethard? Um, you know, I, I didn't really know him well, but uh, I was out there a number of times. Uh, I was working for UPI and did some local stuff and. You know, at a time when when general managers then were usually in a coat and tie, he was in usually running shorts and a t-shirt, and he was he was just a, a really nice guy. Uh, I think I think that most people who remember being around him remember how friendly and nice he was. And also, this this would never happen now, I guess. But uh, Charlie Casserly succeeded him and did the same thing. There would be a period of time where he would talk off the record. I mean, you could really learn some things that you weren't allowed to use, and uh, and he was he was really good about telling you things. And um, you know, uh, obviously his his performance speaks for itself. Um, and uh, oh, and 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 he was also he was a big risk taker. You know, he he did. I don't ever remember him moving up to uh, to a higher draft pick. He was usually moving down. 
And even in the first round, where you only lose what three of them, and two yeah. of them became Hall of Famers. Yeah. Um, I think I think he may have even traded down on one one or, t- or two of those. But he had an infatuation with white cornerbacks. Oh my God! And so true. You remember remember this? And remember Tory he took Nixon. a guy. I think, and Brian Brian Davis Brian Williams was Brian Davis, right? Yeah, Brian Davis out of, out of Nebraska. Yeah. yeah the, the Tory Nixon one thing, as, as I remember it. He was a second-round pick, but Bethard was so in love with him, he traded the following year's number one to get him, to move up to, to two to be able to take him because he either didn't have a pick in the second round or yeah. was moving up in the second round. And, and I'm telling you, look, look this up. They traded Torrey Nixon before the season started. He didn't even play a game. He played a ex- ex- couple of exhibition games, and they dealt him away. And if, if you do pop psychology, it might be because – Bobby Bethard was a white cornerback who tried out for the Redskins uh, after he finished up at uh, San Luis Obispo, I think was college, yeah. and, uh, and and was released. And and I guess he was you know channeling because because his brother was a you know pretty decent player in the league. His brother Pete Bethard played about ten years right. in the NFL uh, as a quarterback. So you know might might have been you know something like that. That that was. That may have been a little bit of a flaw that he had, but but otherwise. Well, he drafted you know, Vernon Dean. He drafted Vernon. Vernon yeah. Dean was a second rounder and obviously ended up starting, um, yeah. you know, in in the Super Bowl for for back to back years in '82 and '83. The other thing, and I don't think I mentioned this to Tommy yesterday, and I and I thought about this. I think after the show, it may have been during the show. Who knows? That was all of yesterday. Um, he had a real. Uh, uh, San Diego State thing going. Don Warren. Yeah. Don Warren uh-huh. was San Diego State. Um, it, Vernon Dean was San Diego State, uh, and then Brian Davis was San Diego State. The uh, not, not. I mean, Tory Nixon was uh, San Diego yeah. State, and he had kind of this preference for kind of West Coast players a lot of the time. Like I was looking at his his first draft here was uh, Washington State, Santa Clara, Azusa, Pacific, three players <laughs> picked. The The next draft had San Diego State, Don Warren at the top. Um, and then, you know, you, had to, you went a couple of years and, and had uh, Washington State and a Portland State, you know, with Clint Didier. I think a lot of – well, he always, you know, loved some of those smaller schools. I mean, um, but yeah. the San Diego State thing and, yeah, the, I mean – Neither Tory Nixon nor Brian Davis could play. Neither one of them could play, and they were both taken in the second round. He missed on a lot of players, yeah. but hit on a lot of late no. round rounders. Well, he did, but but because he would always trade down, he had extra picks. This is also the Bill Walsh philosophy. You know, load yeah. up in the middle rounds. So right. if you miss on a few, uh, it's okay. You know, probably the the West Coast thing was that's where he had his contact. There were probably a group of scouts and other people that he knew out there that he really trusted yeah so so that may, may have had something to do with it also the thoroughness that he had uh in 1981 neil lomax was playing at portland yeah, state that's how he and, did here. and he was yeah but but that's an incredible story in that he didn't need a quarterback you know 1981 joe theisman's in his prime then what theisman is what 31 30 something like that yeah and uh and he goes out to portland state just to do his due diligence and neil lomax on what was i guess they called it pro day then uh he's throwing to his buddy who's wide receiver didier and 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 he looks at him and he says i'm going to project him as a tight end he's a he's a wide receiver at a small college projects as a tight end takes him in the 12th round when they still had 12 rounds 
and he was he was a key player on the first two Super Bowl teams. He what he player six seven years oh, like yeah. that. Yeah, was, good. It was yeah. his it was his motion on fourth and one um, yeah. that made Don McNeil slip a little bit. Um, yeah, and and you know for what you've talked about, which is true, you know the trading back and the accumulation of mid round picks. I, I mentioned to Tommy yesterday. You know he he comes in in seventy eight. And George Allen's traded away, you know, for years, uh, all of their, you know, top, not just their first mm-hmm. rounders, their second, third, fourth rounders as well. His first pick ever in 1978 came in the sixth round. It was Tony Green in the, he didn't have a first, second, third, fourth, or fifth to work with. And the first first rounder since 1968 for the franchise was Art Monk in 1980. They had not had a first yeah, round know. pick since 1968. I know it, it, it was crazy, but but also remember this, um, and this is this is an odd thing too. Jack Pardee also came to Washington in 1978, yep. and they were oil and water. And and uh, the way I understand it, it was Pardee was hired first, and then they brought Bethard in. That's right. And and Bethard looked around, and Pardee was kind of like a member of the old boys network because remember he was an Allen guy, and some of the guys who were still on the team were Allen players and they were old cronies and he and Bethard looks around and he goes, Jesus, everybody's overpaid and they're old. <laughs> we need to get younger. We need to get better draft picks. And uh, I, I heard you talking about this and, and it is a, an excellent point. I don't know which way it would have gone, but had they beaten Dallas in that final game in 1979 and maybe they were good enough to win the Super Bowl, you know, what happens between party? I mean, certainly if they win the Super Bowl, he stays another few years. But let's say they go to the second round of the playoffs. Does he still, you know, get rid of party after three years? I don't know. It's interesting. I, I, I asked Charlie about that, and I said, you know, what would have happened? And he said, I, he goes, it's an interesting question. He said, I mean, Bobby certainly had a plan. Um, and, you know, he had, you know, Charlie also made an interesting point. I'd kind of forgotten about this, that, you know, after they lose to Dallas at the end of 79, which, you know, I've mentioned many times is one of the most devastating fan losses of my lifetime. Um, I can't, I think I was devastated and could not, you know, function for at least two days. Uh, that really was the all-time gut punch loss because you're two minutes away from the number one seed with home field advantage. And then, you know, literally, five minutes of real time later, you're not even going to the playoffs. Um, And it was awful. Uh, But he mentioned, he said, you know, in 1980, no Riggins. Mosley was awful in 1980. Started off 3 of 13, and yet a lot of those games were really close games. He's like, we went 6 and 10 in 1980, but we really weren't that bad of a team. We had a lot of close losses. We had no Riggo, and Mosley was horrible in 80. And, um, you know, but it gave Bethard uh, and then Cook because Edward Bennett Williams was really then not in the decision making process as he had been when he hired mm-hmm. Pardee. Um, he right. it, 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 Cook then wanted um, Bethard uh, to to make the decisions, and Bethard had his eye on Gibbs. I mean, nobody else did. But yeah, if they win in '79, we've talked about this a lot over the years. If they win that game in '79, they don't blow a 13-point lead in the final two and a half minutes of that game. Uh, they go on to the postseason. They now Dallas lost 
the following week. It was Roger Staubach's final game of his career. They lost at home to the Rams. So maybe Washington loses that game, and that's a devastating loss, and Rigo says goodbye, and um, but, you know, probably if they win that game at Dallas, win the division and win a game, Rigo's coming back and 80's a different season and you never get Gibbs. Uh, that may be, yeah, that, that may mean, be that, what that, happened. That's, a, that's possible, although, you know, and I, I, would, I, I understand what Charlie's saying there, but I did uh, radio with Monty Coleman for a number of years and, and I he was on that team in 80. Yeah. And he said, even going into the season, the word was out that, that they wanted to get rid of party. And he said that hung over the season like a cloud, you know, certainly not having Riggins was, was a big deal, but he said that the feeling the whole season was no matter what they did, that they were getting rid of party and it just, you know, kind of deteriorated from there. You so, know, I don't you, know, you know, it's interesting. And I, I, I know you remember this, but I bet many people who are listening don't remember this. When Jack Pardee got fired um, at the end of the 1980 season, Bethard goes and hires Gibbs from San Diego, who's coaching for Coriel, and Pardee goes to San Diego for the next season to be Coriel's defensive coordinator for that one year. Yeah, in '81. Yeah, well, that, that was. You remember those? You remember those those teams that that they had the San Diego team. Oh, they were just. It was like it was like. Paul Westhead in basketball. I mean, they they were just trying to outscore. They didn't even care what the defense did. Just just get back on the field, so you know we can we can start throwing more touchdown passes. So Chuck Muncie can have a, have a few runs. I mean, they were it, it was it was incredible to watch, um, and and that's what I think Bethard envisioned uh, for Gibbs coming here. You know, the way things turned out, I don't think was anything like he thought it would turn out. I know he thought he was a good coach. But they were going to run a high-powered offense, which they really didn't. It was a run-based offense based on the personnel they had. The Chargers were ahead of their time. You know, Tommy and I were talking about Brady yesterday and and doing sort of quarterback Mount Rushmore stuff. And, and, you know, Marino's always probably going to be on my Mount Rushmore. Marino threw for 5,000 yards before anybody except for Fouts was throwing for 4,000 yards. I mean, he was way ahead of his time. But, you know, that Chargers team of 81 with Fouts and Muncie and and Jefferson and Winslow and, um, you know, Wes Chandler and uh, um, the, the, the longtime uh, receiver Joyner. there, Char- Charlie Joyner. Charlie, Charlie yeah. Joyner. Um, they were unstoppable offensively. They put up some of the biggest numbers in the history of the league to that point. I think they were at that point the the highest scoring team in in, in NFL history. Um, and Jack Pardee coached their defense, and Pardee <laughs> was the coach uh, for that defense in that what I still believe to be, other than the Bills Chiefs game from last year, the greatest playoff game I've ever seen, which was the Chargers Dolphins. You know, uh, at the Orange Bowl, forty-one thirty-eight overtime game, the Winslow game. Winslow game. Party was the yeah. defensive coordinator for for the Chargers, yeah. and then and remember they won that game, went on to Cincinnati, where it was fifty-seven below with the wind chill. You know, the following <laughs> week, and lost that game to the Bengals and Ken Anderson, and and uh, and that was the Forty ers You know, first year with Montana winning it, but um. 
Yeah, it is interesting to think about, you know, the Bethard thing, who probably didn't want party, maybe Cook didn't want party, and maybe you're right, like Monty Coleman said. But if they had won in 79 and Rigo had come back, they probably would have been a competitive team the following year, and it would have been hard to fire a guy if he had won, you know, a playoff game in 79 and they went, you know, 9-7 and seven and back to the playoffs in 80 or something like that. Who yeah, knows? And, right. And then, and then Gibbs would have wound up someplace else, and uh, we'd never know. <laughs> we'd never know. We'd yeah. never know. Yeah. Uh, well, things work out for a reason. Um, mm-hmm. Doug Williams, uh, 35 years ago, uh, earlier this week, was the first black quarterback to start and win a Super Bowl. And I know you were talking about earlier uh, today um, on your show um, just the discussion around this upcoming Super Bowl being the first between um, black quarterbacks on both teams. What do you Mm – so what was your discussion about? What were you talking about? Well, I mean, I, I was at that that Super Bowl in in San Diego, uh, and and the you know one of the, the, the as, as we do this every year, what's the stupidest Super Bowl question? And somebody invariably says, somebody asked Doug Williams, "How long have you been a black quarterback?" Which was not the question that was asked. The, the question was from somebody from uh, a paper in Mississippi. His last name is Johns. He's since passed away, uh, but he had covered Doug Williams when he was at Grambling, and he said, "Doug." Obviously, you've been a black quarterback your whole life. When did it start to matter? Which is a really good question. Yeah. But you've been in these media scrums where it's three and four deep, and he was sort of in the back, and Williams doesn't hear it very well. He says, what? How long have I been a black quarterback? There's no, no video of this. There's no audio as far as I know. And somebody gave this nugget to the San Diego Union-Tribune. This is pre-internet and everything. So everybody who's at the Super Bowl covering the game is reading the local paper, and they see this little nugget and they run with it. Well, that's not what happened, you know. And interesting, uh, and, I didn't Williams, know that. Yeah, yeah, and and Williams has even said, and he, I think he's wrong, but he he has said, "Oh, somebody asked me how long have I been a black quarterback." Yeah. Well, they didn't ask that question, but that's that's how how things work there, and. Um, also, I remember this, and, and if you watch uh, the Dexter Manley uh, football life, yeah, of course. Uh, this little clip is, is in there, and I, I'm standing next to Larry Duvall, a longtime uh, producer sure. in town. And, uh, and so Dexter is, they have, this is where they have, you know, the various sections where the player is supposed to show up and the media sits and waits for him. And Dexter is late coming out, wondering what's going on. Finally, he comes out sweating. He's got a newspaper under his arm, and he says, I need to have questions in writing, in writing. And there's a real loud and everybody jumps back. And then the irony was, of course, that he couldn't read at that time. Yeah. Um, you know, there, there, there's a lot of things about that Super Bowl. But um, I was in the I was working for WFAN then. And uh, we were in the what they call the auxiliary press, which is just basically a section of the stands. And uh, there were these two Bronco fans behind me. And that game was a disastrous start for Washington. Could yeah. have been worse. Down ten nothing. But but yeah, everything that was that could have gone wrong went wrong and they are screaming and I'm thinking, oh God, this is gonna be a long day. And then that second quarter unfolded and halfway through it they were gone. I mean that that was that was an explosion that, that I don't think have we ever seen anything like that from no. any kind eight, of a Washington eight, 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 team? Eighteen plays thirty five points. Um, yeah, it that, was it was it was incredible. Yeah, yeah. It, it's uh, 
it's the most explosive anybody's ever been in the Super Bowl in that short a span. I mean, it was it was literally 18. I mean, for those of you that don't know, 18 plays, 35 points in a quarter. Uh, they went from being down 10 nothing to up 35-10 to winning the Super Bowl. 42 uh, to 10 with, by the way, a fifth round pick by Bobby Beathard, Timmy Smith rushing for 204 yep. yards um, in the, uh, in the Super Bowl. Um, crazy. Uh, what else? How you been? Pretty good. Pretty good. You know, I'm a grandfather now, yeah, so, know. you know, I'm, uh, moving along, I'll, you know, things, things are, uh, things are okay. And, uh, you know, still doing what I do. So happy to be doing it. Uh, time when a lot of people my age are out so you know no, no real complaints all right i'll talk to you soon we'll get together for lunch sounds good good to talk to you we're done for the day i'll be back on monday without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running everything would suddenly stop hospitals factories schools and power plants they all depend on you no matter the weather emergency or time of day you're the ones who get it done at Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.